today. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn back to those verses in 1 Timothy. This is where we've been as a church over the last while in uh, God's precious word. Been learning so many things uh, as we, we want to be a community, don't we, who, is, who are shaped uh, by the word of God. And it has been such a precious time for us over the last number of weeks as a church to spend time in this letter. But 1 Timothy, we're in at chapter 1, verse 12 today. Here's what I want you to think about as we begin. Um, how does this uh, morning find you? I wonder. Uh, maybe you're here today and you're burdened. Uh, maybe you're here today and you're feeling the monotony of life. We love to think we're creative beings, don't we? But how often are our days very much the same? We get up and we do the same things. And maybe you're here and it's the same worries you come here with today. Uh, maybe you're at a loss in life. Maybe you are struggling to carry on. Maybe you are, your soul is weary. And here's my one aim for this morning. is to help us be strengthened by the grace that's found in Jesus Christ. That's what we all need here today. To be strengthened by the grace that's in Jesus now, here's a little game we play with our kids. You might have seen them at the front this morning. Boisterous bunch, keep us on our toes. Here's a game that we play with them. Um, it's called You're an Expert. You're an Expert, right? And it's a game where we kind of award each other the title of being the best at something, right? To this day, I can't work out where they get their competitive side from, but this is the game that we play with them, right? You're an Expert. So in our family, we've got an expert tree climber. We've got an expert junior monopoly player we've got an expert hungry hippos player there's an expert on the monkey bars there's an expert at scooting um, there's an expert at hide and seek there's an expert at making hot chocolates we, we love to be the best and it's true in our world isn't it we love live in a world that that, that promotes being the best think about the, the endless cycle we get in our culture best motion picture Home of the Year. Remember that, that program, wasn't it? It was on recently. Scotland's Home of the Year. We award Michelin stars. We love the Apprentice winner every year. We get the Ballon d'Or. We get the Sunday Times Rich List. We get the Times, Time Magazine Person of the Year. And on and on and on this could go. We live in a culture, isn't it, that, that says, be the best. And I wonder if you've walked in maybe today thinking that that's how it works outside is how it works in here. Isn't it? We know in our lives that the pressure we put on ourselves to, to live up to the person that we want to be. And I take it, if, if that's us here today, if we're feeling the pressure of never quite living up, sometimes it's the pressure we put on ourselves, isn't it? I take it that there's a refreshing surprise that's right at the heart of these verses. Because it's the confession of a man who freely admits to being the worst. And he's found life in owning the fact that his life is not about who he is. It's about who someone else is. And with that, I'm immediately sitting up and paying attention. If this man has found life, and he's found it by not looking at who he is, he's looking at who someone else is. That, that's what I want for my own life. It's what I want for the people that I love. It's what I want for you here today. To be strengthened in the place that he has found life. Now, 
lest we divorce this passage from its context, let me just bring you up to speed in the first bit of chapter 1. Paul, he's, he's writing and he's urging this man, young man called Timothy. Timothy's his protege, his church plant and buddy, his friend in the trenches of ministry. And he's the guy who he's left in Ephesus to get this church back on track, right? To, to be doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing as a local church. And you'll see it at 3.15. This is what Paul writes, to be the church of the living God. This is what God, he lives in the hearts of his people through his spirit, the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. It's what we're supposed to be doing as a local church for, for our folks in Brunsfield. It's what we're doing, like a pillar in a temple. We're holding up the truth. It's what they used to do back in the day. You ever wondered why churches have spires? Apparently this is the story. Did it ever people walking around wanted to know where to find truth and love? They just needed to look for the spire. It's what we're supposed to be doing, isn't it? It's a local church holding up the truth, God's word, the gospel for the world to see. And this is what Paul wants Timothy to be doing in this local church. And we saw, well, we at Brunswick saw last week, verse 3. Chapter 1, straight off the bat, Paul says, Stand up to those in the city of Ephesus who are teaching falsely, leading people astray from the gospel, which is where we find life. And I think it's particularly in, in the false teaching is about how we should respond and be relating to the Old Testament law. So could it be the case that some in the background here are, are looking at the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament law, and saying, it's a barometer for our righteousness. So in other words, we, we, because we don't do certain things, then we are automatically in God's good books. It's legalism. It's the heart of it. That because we don't do certain things, we're so much people better than the people probably in the world out there who do do those kind of things. And there's a self-righteousness that appears on the surface. So no wonder this church in Ephesus are marked by envy and divisions and strife because that's what that's what it does, isn't it? It brings out our pride. Because if we can earn our way into God's good books, then we don't need Christ. And what did Paul say? He said the law is good. And it is good because it brings us face to face with the heart of our holy God. But if, if you let God's law, his word, really search your hearts, and I love that description. We get in Hebrews, isn't it? It's, the word is like is a double-edged sword, piercing. Isn't it just straight in there? It's what it does. Not only does it expose our sin, it exposes our deep need to be rescued from ourselves. And as we face up to the law, as we face up to who God is, it should drive us to our knees. Because it's there that we meet Christ. And see, if you're still not 100% convinced on that, Timothy, Paul says, let me just remind you of my story. Because Paul's life is case in point as to how the grace of Jesus Christ works. Now, let me just, I'm into really simple sermon outlines, okay? Now, we can track with this one, I'm, I'm guessing. This morning, three, two, one. Okay? Three, two, one. Now, picking it up at verse 12. There are three things that Paul knows he was. Just flick this on. Three things that Paul knows he was. So here's the man who grew up a top-of-the-class Jew. 
right? He's got impeccable credentials. He comes from the right family. He sat under an impressive teacher, correct behavior, right beliefs. I mean, he is holding in his hand a religious royal flush. You're just not beating this guy for an impeccable religious life. He is the poster boy Jew. I mean, how many of us here grew up with a picture of the person that we wanted to be on the wall of our bedroom, right? Maybe it was a footballer, maybe it was a singer, maybe it was an astronaut, the person who we, we, we were striving to be. You've got to understand that if you're a Jewish boy growing up, Paul's on your wall. He's the best in the game. He's the best in the business. But, but Paul looks back on that life, his former life, and you see how he knows what he was, verse 13? He was a blasphemer. Right? He cursed the name of Jesus. He spat at the very mention of his name. He was a persecutor. This is the man who went to the bother of obtaining a warrant in order that he could arrest the early disciples. And he was fully prepared to travel all the way from Jerusalem to Damascus, which is a six-day journey, 135 miles. Remember, there's no kind of mega bus back in this day. He's, he's, he's going there, fully intent on arresting the disciples, dragging them all the, way, all the way back to Jerusalem, presumably so they can be humiliated, because what they stand for, following Jesus, it grates right against everything that his life is all about. It wasn't like he hadn't heard of Jesus Nor that he didn't understand what Jesus was claiming. Oh, if only you told me. No, he flat out rejected it and he wanted to crush it as a movement. And I take it that Paul looks back on those lists of of sins, kind of from verse 8 onwards, chapter 1, and see when he's penciling murder, I reckon he's writing that knowing in his conscience that there is blood on my hands because he was a violent man. See, in Acts 9, Luke describes him as a man who's breathing threats and murder against the disciples. I don't even know how that works. How do you breathe murder? I take it it's just a way of helping us see that the guy's just wanting to kill people. And here's the point, I think. Paul isn't just an unlikely convert. He was the guy, see, if we were writing the story of Acts, he was the guy that we would have expected Jesus to just take out the game, silence him. And yet the risen Jesus stops Paul in his tracks on the road to Damascus and Paul sees the utter folly of his ways. Do you know what I love in that section in Acts? We get Jesus saying, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Right? Paul's saying, I'm not persecuting you. But do you see the close association that the risen Jesus has with his people? That to persecute them is to persecute me. I hope that encourages you today if you're going through a hard time that Jesus stands with you. I love how closely Jesus identifies with his people all over the world. You know, I think that's what's keeping, I'd imagine, Christians in Afghanistan, Christians in Syria going, that the risen Jesus stands for them. He sees what's going on and he will have the last say. Jesus identifies with his people. But you see how Jesus gives Paul a new purpose in his life. We'll come back to this in a minute. He gives him a new purpose in his life. But there was three things that Paul knows he was. And then we get two things that he knows he's received. Firstly, do you see how he's received mercy? Do you see him say that? He says that twice in these verses. He uses that phrase, I was shown 
mercy. Verse 13 and 16, if you're tracking with me. And it's the repeated refrain of God's people down the ages, is it not? Get it all the way through the Psalms. Psalm 103, top of my head. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He has shown us his, his loving kindness, that God shows us mercy. This is who this God is. And second thing that Paul knows he's been shown, he knows he's been shown grace. Folks, verse 14, he didn't just not treat me as I deserved. He treated me exceedingly better. He loved me. You, know, you just get the sense that Paul never gets over the grace of God, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's an incredible thing, isn't it, folks? One of my favorite Matt Redmond songs, he talks about mercy. May I never lose the wonder of your mercy. Folks, I wonder if you've got tired this morning of celebrating what God has done for you in Jesus. Paul never gets over the mercy, the grace of God in his own life. He treated me exceedingly better. And that grace was poured out, me, poured out on me abundantly. What an image that is. See, when we got married, the first flat we had, we lived in Bristol for a little bit. We had a little dripping tap. That was our shower. Little dripping tap. You know what it's like to live at little dripping tap? That's not the image, is it? This is a Niagara Falls. Grace poured out in me abundantly. It's just like when you go to a wedding, you get one of those chocolate fondues. It just keeps on going. It's that kind of language, isn't it? The grace of God has been poured out on me abundantly. And he knows both these things in Christ. Mercy and grace. The old time, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me is daily shown, nor why with mercy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. Oh, friends, the grace of God. And so Timothy here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I take it that's not false humility. I take it that's him. And remember, growing up like he did, he knows what the wrath of God is. He knows the weight of sin against a holy God. And so Paul is saying here, woofed. The wrath of God that I deserve, that Jesus would take my place on the cross, him for me. Oh, friends, that I am the worst of sinners. And so from two things he knows he's received. Friends, there's one thing he knows it means. Do you see how he calls it? The very reason I was shown mercy. Love that word reason, as if there's a purpose to this. Do you see him? In other words, here's why. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So all those who are looking on, all those 2,000 odd years later, as we read this guy's story, this is a, a, a tale to us that if, if Jesus can transform this man's life, friends, he can transform anyone's life. Paul sees himself as what? An example of what? Of the patience of God. Just how patient Jesus is with rebels. 
You know, the line, I, I, as a parent, right, if you're a parent here, you might click on this one. The line I heard myself using the other night, you're, you're skating on thin ice. Is that a West Coast thing? I don't even know what that is. You're skating on thin ice. The back of my head, I'm thinking, check you out using the classic parent line. You're skating on thin ice. But it's what we say, isn't it? We say, the straw that broke the camel's back, my patience is wearing thin. But here's what I want you to know. Jesus is not like us. He's not just like me on my best days. How often can we think he's just like that? He's kind of a souped-up version of a really good human being. He's not like us. Oh, friends, here's what I want you to know. And my own soul is so encouraged by this that we have given Jesus countless reasons to jump ship. We have given him numerous opportunities to bail. We have given him ample time to cut his losses and get out now. And yet none of those things have changed his mind towards us. It's what it means, isn't it? For us to be united to Jesus, and that is your identity if you're a Christian here today. It's meaning that Jesus is going nowhere. Our friends, he holds us in his hands. If you're a Christian here today, know that this is not about the strength of your faith. Because we know that in our own lives. It's not about the strength of our own faith. It's about the strength of Jesus' love for and grip on us. The God who knew us before we were in our mother's wombs. The God who chose us in eternity past. The God who sent his son at a particular moment in time. Who came, who lived, who died in my place, in our place for our sin on the cross. And the God who has sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. Do you see how this God could not be more committed to us? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. God has given us his everything. And make no mistake, this is not about the strength of our faith because this God in Christ has said, I will get you home. It's what we're celebrating at the start, wasn't it? I loved that. This is our future. I take it that's what John Newton was reflecting on all those years ago. As he penned those lyrics, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. We don't graduate from this, do we? We don't graduate from the gospel. We live here. That's why it's so important in our churches, isn't it, that we cultivate a community of grace and patience. I think how often I get impatient with my brothers and sisters. What am I doing? When I face up to how patient Jesus Christ is with me. Oh, friends, I hope that encourages you today as you take a... A deep breath of who Jesus is. And I take it that's why this is the bit that we're doing at Brunsfield this morning, the first bit of chapter two. I take it that that is why Paul says to this church who've perhaps become really inward looking, he says, I want you to be outward looking and get praying for all sorts of people. I take it that's what's driving this. Now, let me just ask you if you think about it, what hope is there? For the pub crawl leader in your halls at uni. What hope is there for the banter setter in your workplace? What hope is there for that hard as nails right back in your football team? 
What hope is there for that neighbour in your street who seems to have life sorted? What hope is there for that high-profile atheist who takes to Twitter to mock the things of the Christian faith? What keeps us going? What keeps us witnessing when it seems like Jesus isn't even on the radar on people's lives? What keeps us going? Friends, what keeps us going? Answer is that Jesus is like this. The pursuing heart of God for running rebels. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that keep you fired up in terms of evangelism to your neighbors, to your friends, to your mates, that that Jesus is like this? That's why Paul would write in chapter 2, God desires all people to be saved. He's got a heart for every single human being who's ever existed and will ever exist. Jesus is like this. It's amazing. I'm so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I'm so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. He never gets over the grace of God that saved him. And you see how Jesus didn't just save Paul and then he kind of set him loose to roam in the hills like some kind of wild stallion. Do you see that? He saved him, verse 12 and 13. He has saved them and he says, He appointed me to his service. Saves them, gives them a job to do. Friends, know that Jesus hasn't saved you and just said, Go and do what you want. It's never how it works in the Bible. It's always saved to worship. Always that way. Saved, worship. You are here. Whatever you are here today, whatever you go and do tomorrow, whatever you, we spread as we go from here, our job, and it will look different in our context, wasn't it? But our one job is to be the pillar that holds up the truth for the world to see. Paul has been given a job to do. Now, we won't be the apostle, but we do have a job to do. Can you get over what he's saying, verse 13? Can you believe, Timothy, that Jesus appointed me, verse 13? He appointed me, and you need to know that he's appointed you as well for that job that you're doing in Ephesus, that job where I'm sure you want to bolt because it's hard. It wasn't me that appointed you. You need to know that, Timothy. It wasn't those who prophesied over you. I take it just and confirmed your, your giftedness and your heart and your suitability for taking on this role that appointed you. It wasn't even the elders who read later on in this letter. The elders who laid their hands on you who appointed you know that Jesus himself appointed you for this role. And this role you're to do, you have to fight the battle well. See that verse 18? Keep on going. Keep on going. I take it. He's going to come up against people like Hymenaeus and Alexander, who presumably Paul knows about. They've heard everything that he's been preaching. They've heard the gospel and they've just given it a custard pie. We're not entertaining that. We know better. We can go our own way. And I take it Paul's talking there about some kind of early form of, of church discipline. These men put out so that they'll see the error of their ways and come back and have life in the true gospel. But Timothy, do you know what's going to keep you going in that battle? Day after day, as things feel the same, as you wake up each morning and you think, I don't know if I can do this, what's going to keep you going? Friends, what's going to keep you going tomorrow? Just to live another day by the life of faith. I take it it's verse 12. The strength that's found in the grace of Jesus. You know, I was thinking all this week, why does Paul bother rehashing this? Right? It's not like these two have been mates for a long time. It's not like Timothy doesn't know this. 
As if to say, Paul, talk about lying in your CV. If I'd only known that about you, I wouldn't have got involved with you at all. Why does he tell them this again? I take it it's a case in point for how grace works. Absolutely. I take it it's it's another underscoring of the the validity of his gospel message. But I take it that there's more. Later on in this letter, verse 6 of chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy to be nourished on the truths of the faith, right? Verse 6, chapter 4, if you're looking it up, be nourished on the truths of the faith. Love that word nourished. Love that word nourished. We look after our own bodies, don't we? We nourish our own bodies, right? Going to Sainsbury's local Tesco, other ones are available, I'm sure. But what do you find in the shelves? You see vitamin tablets, don't you? You see health shakes. What's everyone eating these days? Avocados, right? I didn't even know what it was, let alone how to spell it 10 years ago. But suppose everyone's doing avocados. Don't even get me started on kale. Don't even know what that is. But we nourish our own bodies, don't we? We, we care about our own bodies. The, the things that go in are that are going to help us grow. And you see how 2,000 years ago, oh, it, Paul tells Timothy spiritually there's something way more important. And you need to nourish yourself on what? The foundational truths of the Christian faith, which I take it is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In other words, be strengthened by the grace that's found in Jesus. Lapping up who he is, being galvanized by his love for us, that sense of wonder at who he is. Friends, let me just ask you in your own times before we think about this corporately, when was the last time, like Martha, sorry, like Mary, that you just sat at the feet of Jesus? I love how he commends her for what? Choosing the good portion. She's here. She wants me. And I take it that's the heart of true discipleship, isn't it? But friends, if we think about this corporately, you know the reason that we gather here today, that we gather every Sunday, we don't gather so that Jesus might grade us. Where would any of us be if that was the case? But how often, maybe you are here today and you've walked in thinking that that's how it works, putting on your best for everyone to see. We did not turn up today for Jesus to grade us. We turned up as a community to be strengthened together by the grace that's found in him. Didn't we? It's what we're about as a community. You know, the more you read of Paul, you just get the sense that he never gets over the grace of God. And these false teachers, they are, they, the way, what they are teaching, it's multifaceted in this letter, is leading to envy, division, and pride. But Paul's gospel of Jesus Christ crucified in our place for our sin and by faith sharing his righteousness, friends, it leads to joy, peace, thanksgiving, and life. And let the grace of Jesus be the rocket fuel that propels us into a life of godliness. This letter's all about godliness, all about godliness, but it starts with the foundation of grace. Are you resting in the grace of Jesus today? You know, just as we close, you know, one of the biggest shows when I was growing up on TV was Friends. And 
Some of you may have watched that reunion that they did recently. I don't know if you did. I watched a bit of it. Two hours of your life, probably not two hours you're getting back, right? But let me tell you about one thing, that bit, the bit that we watched, the one thing that fascinated me about it. It was a reflection from Matthew Perry. Now, Matthew Perry's the guy that played Chandler. Chandler was the kind of good-looking guy living in New York penthouse. Always seemed to get the good lines. Everybody in school wanted to be Chandler because he was the funny guy. And Matthew Perry in this show, this reunion, starts opening up about his struggles. Right? Round, round the sofa with James Corden. Don't know how he got that gig, but he did. They're sitting around the sofas and they're talking about what life was like when they were filming together. And what he said fascinated me. I'll put it up on the screen, okay? He said this. That every time that they filmed in front of a live audience, if he made a joke, if he made a funny line and nobody laughed, it used to kill him inside. Is that not fascinating? That it used to kill him inside. No wonder the guy looked shattered. Because he needed the laughs, he, he yearned for the affection of people, and he needed it to maintain his sense of persona. No wonder the guy looked shattered. What an exhausting way to live your life. And yet I wonder how many of us here today can perhaps identify somehow with what he's saying. Friends, can we not spend our whole lives trying to perform for other people? Trying to get the praise of others? You know, maybe it's your your parents. Maybe it's your your school grades. Maybe it's your your children. You want to come across as sorted parents to them. Maybe it's your classmates. Maybe it's the neighbours in your streets. Maybe it's your peer group. Maybe it's your friendship circles. And dare I say, maybe even it's your church family. That I feel that pressure to perform. That I want them to think that I'm sorted, that I've got it together. Friends, let me just say, I've never met a person who is more impressive in person than they are on their Facebook profile. But it's true, isn't it? That we project the image that we want the world to see. Let me just say that says just as more, I would say, about my feelings and my own heart than it does about anyone else's. But this is where we're finishing today. When you know the God of verse 17, the God who is eternal, and get these descriptions of who he is today, the God who is eternal, the God who is immortal, the God who is invisible, the God who is so far above the things of the earth, who is three times holy, when you know that God, and in Christ you can call him your Father. We should never go over those two Two truths at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, should we? Our Father who are in heaven, he is in heaven, dwells in in unapproachable light, and yet he's our Father, we have his ear. If you know that that God is for us in Christ, and he loves me, and he loves me on my best days, and he loves me on my worst days, and he loves me exactly the same, Friends, I take it that that is the place where we will find life. As we know the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. So friends, my one aim today is that we would be strengthened by the grace that's found in Jesus Christ. Tell you what, let's have a moment of silence. 
And it's really fitting that we're going to move into a time of communion now. But why don't we just have a time of silence? And let's just bring our own prayers before our God, knowing that he hears us in Jesus. And then I'll lead us in a short prayer. Father, we, I would particularly pray for those here today, Father, who are struggling in the fight of the faith. And I would pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would bring an, a sense of assurance of who they are in Jesus Christ. Ransomed, redeemed, chosen, forgiven, sealed with your precious Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, in a world that screams at us so many different identities, Father, may that be the one that drives everything that we do, and may that be the one that strengthens us. Father, for those here today who haven't put their trust in Jesus, oh, I pray that today would be the day where, as John would write in his gospel, we find life in his name. And Father, we just praise you for who you are today. Lord, we recognize that we are like the grass, the flowers of the field that come and go. We, our emotions are all over the place. So often we are up and down, and yet you are the same. And we praise you for who you are. And Lord, we just thank you for your great love for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.